Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the privilege of talking with a distinguished scholar, New Testament scholar, Dr. Lynn Coick. She has served as professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, and she is the incoming provost and dean of Denver Seminary, a wonderful teacher of Scripture and of God's people. And Dr. Kohick, it's an honor to talk with you today on the Beeson Podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much, Timothy, for inviting me to talk about something I love, which is uh, the early church. Yeah. Well, uh, we actually want to focus on a book that you have written with Dr. Amy Brown Hughes, Dr. Hughes teaches at Gordon College, and you all have collaborated on what is a fantastic book, Christian Women in the Patristic World, Their Influence, Authority, and Legacy in the 2nd through 5th Centuries. So let me just start by asking you how you got interested in this topic, what led you to develop this theme for the book? Yes, well, I've been interested in women's Christian experience, both ancient and, and modern, really since I was in college. And I began my, uh, as, as I began my studies in graduate school, that was the time when feminist studies came into the academy, the early 80s, and, you know, second wave of feminism, equal pay for equal work, and, and all of that. And, and, um, and so there was a, a real interest in looking at how women in the Greco-Roman world, the Jewish world, the Christian world, how they how they live their lives, generally speaking, and then uh, specifically in, in their religion. When I was in graduate school, I I took a I, I did a independent study on a medieval figure, Julian of Norwich. She had a, yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, compelling. She had the vision that she then meditated on for years afterwards, and she wrote what's called the Showings and. It, it really explores in a deep way the nature of sin and forgiveness. But also in this, she, she thinks about the qualities of Jesus, the maternal qualities of Jesus. Jesus as mother, not in a literal sense, but in this metaphorical sense. And I was captivated by, uh, by how she was understanding theology through this vision. At the same time, I also ran across Tertullian, who is an early church father, and his line, you know, the, that women are the devil's gateway. And uh, <laughs> so there are very different approaches to thinking about women, uh, women in Christianity. But I have to say that as I, as I learned more about Tertullian, I realized he actually would have approved of Julian's desire to know God deeply. He would have accepted in principle that God gives visions to men and women alike. So, you know, as I started to dig deeper, I realized these surface contrasts really are not the, the, the end answer. There's more to it. And so I think that's why both Amy and I decided to look more deeply at, at this, because some people are completely turned off by the church when they read out of context a statement like Tertullian. Um, or other people just, you know, uh, accept the church fathers without any kind of careful interpretation. 
Um, so we, we just kind of wanted to dig deeper. I'm so glad you did. You just used the phrase church fathers, which is, which is of course, where we get patristics as a discipline of early church study. But you're focusing the light on, can we call them church mothers as well? Often somewhat obscured in the historiography. Maybe we don't know as much or don't have as much from their own pens. But there were these very important characters that had a forming role in the life of the church and its spirituality and devotion. And you've put the spotlight on them. So why is it important to do that? Well, I think uh, for a couple of reasons it's important. I think um, we, to be historically accurate, we need to do that. Uh, I think just to be kind of fair for how the church developed. I think secondly, if we only imagine that the real Christians at that time were men who just thought like really deep sort of theological thoughts and then wrote them down in very difficult-to-understand treatises. (laughs) You know, we really have a skewed understanding of what the Church is all about. These same men, like a Jerome or an Augustine or a Chrysostom or a Gregory of Nyssa, they're also going to church a lot. And they're fellowshipping with men and women of all sorts, and they're taking the Eucharist and they're participating in baptism and they're doing all kinds of things as a way to become uh, stronger in their faith and to be transformed into the image of Christ the Son. And so the, what, what focusing on women at this time does is it reminds us of how important liturgy was at this time. It, it, you know, we kind of, I think, some imagine that, well, the, the Church Fathers decided something, and then liturgy implemented it. But it was a much more dynamic and, and circular process, and women were very involved in that. I think of Helena, yeah. who is uh, Constantine's mother, who you could say really developed the religious architecture of the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. And, and we enjoy that to this day with the um, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So women played such a role in how we think about our devotional life and how we live out the liturgical calendar, uh, and then they were conversation partners with um, with the Church Fathers. So Jerome had a very close and, and intellectually vigorous relationship with a uh, woman, Paula, who was a wealthy woman and, and sponsored him so that he could sit for long periods of time and write. And, and I think they, they had a very intellectually stimulating relationship. And, and how much of what Jerome wrote was because of his conversations with Paula. We'll probably never know because we have no direct letters from her. But he gives her a lot of credit. And so this book is trying to help us see those women who actually were very influential, even if we don't have something directly from their pen. You mentioned Helena. I've often thought of her as kind of the pioneer of Christian trips to the Holy Land, because yes. you know, in a way, she started that pilgrimage uh, motif at a time when to recover the places associated with Jesus' life and death and so forth, and that really began and continues to this day as a major Christian uh, motif of spiritual longing and and travel. Absolutely, she also did that as a representative of the imperial family. And that's another component of all of this that I think as sometimes if we just look at theology, we forget that the the political dynamics of this, to have the sponsorship of a member of the imperial family was very, very important. And the imperial coffers that were opened to be able to give to back to the church 
spaces of grandeur and also sponsoring the monasteries and and all of that, helping uh, with the councils, all of that, that there there, there were women who were uh, leaders, like we might think of Elizabeth I, Queen of England, much later, who were very, very important at the upper echelons of leadership within the church, even though they wouldn't have held a position like priest or bishop. Yeah. Well, um, one of the earliest women you discuss is Thecla. Uh, who is Thecla, and what should we know about her? Why, why are you interested in her? Yes, well, she's one of the earliest, uh, in fact, probably the first martyr, the first uh, female martyr that we know about. She, Her story is found in a work called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. And if somebody, you know, if you just type that into Google, you'll pull up, you'll be able to find it online. It's a very influential story through the whole period of our book, the second through the fifth century. It has miracles in it that when we read it today, we kind of wonder, really? Is that, you know, kind of possible? And there are, it's difficult to know just how historical she really is as a figure. But my sense is that there is, there really was a woman who was uh, dedicated to promoting and preaching the gospel and that there grew a legend around her and Paul. So the Acts of Paul and Thecla is not part of Scripture. Uh, we don't want to read it to understand who Paul is. Um, you know, it's, it's not authoritative in that way. But it is very useful and helpful for those who want to see how the church was thinking about their expressions of the gospel in those first decades of the second century. Um, at the end of the book, um, she is kind of taken up. Um, she, she's in a cave, and she's going to be uh, abused by these male ruffians that, that want to do her some harm. And the side of the cave opens up, and she walks in, and and the wall gets put back, and she's saved. Uh, she's that's that's her martyrdom. Her story, though, is about faithfully following after God, based on Paul's gospel message. And what's so powerful? What I think people in those centuries, when both men and women, when they looked at Thecla and they used her as a model, they saw someone who was willing to give up social honor. She was a wealthy woman give up family. She was engaged to be married, and she broke that off. She would have been engaged to a pagan man, and instead she chose Christianity. She defied her family in in the sense that they wanted her to marry and to stay a pagan, but she tried to reconcile uh, with her mom. That unfortunately didn't happen in the story, but, you know, she didn't want to be alienated from the family, but she, she just realized that the Roman values that she grew up in, focusing on wealth, focusing on handing that wealth on to uh, your children, did not match with the gospel call to give your life for Jesus. And so that's what she does, is give her life for Jesus. And she ends up being an itinerant preacher, very similar to Paul, just sharing the gospel message. I think that's what people just were, they, they were taken by her just utter devotion, come what may, 
to the call of God on her life. I sometimes think of this kind of literature, the Acts of Declan Paul and some of the other writings we may want to talk about, uh, as kind of devotional reading in the early church. I mean, it, yes. it's not the Bible, it's not Holy Scripture, it's not divinely inspired in the way the Scripture is, but it's it's consonant with Scripture, and it in some ways extends the story of the church into the early period that uh, Christians were living in and being persecuted very often. Yes, and, and these devotional, I, I, I really think that's right, yes, that, to see it as devotional. When we pick it up today, we're going to have a window open to us on how Christians in the early centuries thought about their body, for example. Thecla is an ascetic. That means she restricts her diet, uh, she wears very simple clothing, and what people don't often realize today is that back in her time, you were able to show your wealth by your clothing and by being able to have fancy food, um, and, and so Thecla's testimony was very much about um, uh, pushing against the, that value of wealth and success and, and all of that business. I, you know, I think of actually Paul when he says in First Timothy that women shouldn't wear pearls or uh, fancy hairdos. Um, part of that is he is also saying, because to have pearls or to have a fancy hairdo means you were wealthy, and he didn't want certain Christians showing off in front of other Christians. Uh, what, what do they say the... the uh, ground at the foot of the cross is level, right? So we're all the same at the foot of the cross. And so Thecla really demonstrated that. The other thing she did was she really demonstrated the conviction of the resurrection of the body. At different times, she was put in the arena. She's going to be drawn and quartered. She was going to be burned. She was going to have a lion eater. I mean, all these things. And and her testimony to the governor is that, that she'll be raised. Um, and And Pagans who listened to that, many pagans who listened to that, were captivated by that conviction of the resurrection of the body. And so those are, those are a couple of things that I think Thecla can even help us understand today. These themes we're talking about, particularly virginity and asceticism, I think are especially problematic to those of us in the more Protestant evangelical tradition. Uh, we associate them often with kind of uh, Catholic works righteousness, something the Reformation did away with. Uh, and yet they are ideals of the Christian life that from which we can learn something. And of course... Virgins is is in, and in the early church, I think an order of women of godly women who served Christ and served the church. Asceticism it wasn't only limited to women. I think we'd have to say that asceticism uh, also is something that was was known to to the monks to the, to those who fled into the desert, uh, like Saint Anthony. So these are maybe way could you call them virtues of Christian living that we need to rediscover in a way in our own time. What would you think about that? Yes, I think so. Uh, I think that uh, you're absolutely right. So celibacy, which uh, which we might call that for men, that a man is celibate and a woman is a virgin, uh, although you, men can be virgins, and there there are church fathers who were virginal. Um, mm-hmm. But the, but the idea that was so pronounced at this time was the sense that where, where I'm going, when in, the, in the new heavens and the new earth, I'm going to have a raised, glorified body. It's going to be physical in some way, but the material is going to 
be different, like Jesus' raised body was different. He could eat, but he could walk through walls. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, um, there, there's a different corporality to it. Yeah, we can do but one, the, but not the other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It will break our nose. Um, and so the, um, so the, I think what the early church saw was this idea that, okay, if that's how I'm going to be, how can I start living like that now? How can I testify to the fact that my body, as a man or as a woman, is going to ha- be raised Im- uh, immortal and imperishable and live with Jesus for all time? And when I do that, there will be a perfection in my male or female body, will be perfected such that I won't um, have romantic love like I have now or I won't have children like I have now. It'll be a different sort of body, but nevertheless male and female. Okay, well, how? one of the ways we can live out that uh, experience now in some small way is to be celibate mm. um, and to be ascetic where we're thinking not to harm our bodies, quite the opposite. The ascetics loved their bodies, or at least that was the goal. They loved them because they knew they were eternal, and they wanted to use them rightly. And so that's, I think, what the ascetic, the celibate, the virgin, what they are teaching us is to love our bodies properly. Um, that, that's what they're, they can help us see. That word aestheticism, I think, comes from the Greek askesis, which really means exercise, doesn't it? Uh, exactly. Exertion uh, in a good way, like we want to get in shape. We have to exercise. We have to walk or run or something. So asceticism, in a way, I think, is a discipline of the body in order to get body and soul both in shape for living uh, the life of God. Exactly right. And I think the ascetics, and, and especially the women, they they um, they recognized how important their bodies were for their whole spiritual life. Um, and they, they wanted to integrate body and soul because it would be fully and perfectly integrated uh, in the resurrection body. Some of these themes we're talking about come together in, I think, a powerful way in one of the most popular stories uh, of the early church, uh, Perpetua and Felicitas. They were both martyrs. Tell us about them and their story and their martyrdom and how that uh, affects the way we think about the Christian life today. Yes, yes. Well, in uh, 203 AD, in a town in North Africa, two women, uh, Felicitas and Perpetua, along with a couple of other others, were arrested for being Christian. And the context is that they were not going to offer a sacrifice in honor of the emperor. Uh, maybe give a libation, a bit of wine, say a few words, maybe toss some incense on the sacred fire. They refused to do that, and so uh, they were thrown in prison. And uh, Perpetua keeps a diary. And this may... Uh, uh, there's discussion about, you know, is this really written by Perpetua? But but there's enough, I think um, there's enough evidence to suggest that she's behind it at least, even if the final version of it isn't directly from her pen. It, it's definitely her thoughts. And so we so that's kind of amazing that we have a document, a woman from this time. And it what she does is she tells us about her life in prison and four visions that she has. So her life in prison is is awful, as you can imagine. She also wrestles with her father, who's pagan, and doesn't want her to to follow through with her faith. And there's this famous line, she says, this very simple, 
I am a Christian. Mm. And that reverberates actually throughout uh, the martyr testimonies. Um, you have other female martyrs. that They just have this statement, I am a Christian. Perpetua is also a mother. She has a young mm. son who's still nursing. And so the, it, unfold, it, it unfolds that, you know, she's, she's very much part of a family. She's a mother. She's a daughter. And she processes through what that means in light of the calling of God for her to be a martyr. And the visions that she has are in part related to uh, helping her understand and be assured that should she die a martyr's death, she will gain a martyr's crown. Mm-hmm. And the others who are with her, they, they see these visions as authoritative, they trust her as a leader, so that when they go into the arena, uh, she, she leads them in. The other uh, character in the title is Felicitas, and she is a slave woman who gives birth very shortly, a day or two, before she enters the arena. And what's fascinating, because so here we have another mother. We have two mothers who are martyred. She uh, hands off her daughter to another sister in the church um, who's not arrested and will be able to raise the daughter. But Felicitas talks about how the, the labor that she is going through uh, is just her own labor right then. But when she goes into the arena, there is someone who is inside her, that is Christ, who will labor on her behalf. It's just a beautiful mm. way of thinking about the, the sacrifice of Christ. The narrator talks about how she went from blood to blood, from the blood of delivering a baby to the blood of being a martyr. The other thing is they used to talk about martyrs having their birthday. It is the day that they were martyred and going. And so here's Felicitas birthing a daughter and herself becoming a new child of God, so to speak, having a birthday the next day herself. It just there, there's a lot yeah. of rich yeah. theology, quite frankly, in, in this uh, narrative. And so I think that's why this story has so captivated the Church, and they, celebrate, they, they celebrated their martyrdom. Augustine, we have a couple of his sermons where he preaches on their uh, birthday uh, yeah. at the Church. And so, yeah, they, they were held up as model believers for their uh, testimony. So their birthday was their death day. It was their execution day, but it was their entrance into heavenly life with God. And so it's a cause of celebration and remembrance. It's wonderful. We're almost out of time, Lynn, but I wanted to ask you if you'd say just a brief word about one of the chapters you've written in this book, Christian Women in Catacomb Art. We've been talking about documents and diaries and stories, but say a little bit about the catacombs and what we can learn about women from the art that we see there. Yes, I think the um, the fascinating thing for me is, one, how difficult it is to read art, so we don't want to jump to conclusions about what is being said there. But the other thing is how how much a part uh, women were, uh, how much they were a part of their family life. So catacombs were burial places. They weren't, you know, where Christians hid from persecution or anything. These were burial, and, and pagans also had catacombs where they uh, buried their dead. Jews had catacombs. So it wasn't simply Christians that did this, but their artwork a lot, a, a lot of it focused on table fellowship, where you had men and women around a table, I think, uh, as, as a way to think about what the next life will be, 
in that fellowship with the Lord, we talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. I, I don't want to say that the images on the catacombs directly reflect that, but you just get a sense of family, um, and that the it, it 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 showed kind of the daily life in in one of those most poignant moments that all families face the death the death of a loved one, and and you you saw how uh, women and men together. Uh, worshipped and testified to their um, to their beliefs in in the resurrection. So, I think that it it um, yeah it, it 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 normalized for me the presence of women in all areas of the church, and that's really I think what our book uh, highlights is women are just there. They're they're just there in all the things that are that are happening. And, uh, and, and influential and, and making decisions, and those decisions affect uh, eventually how the, the liturgy and the creeds and all of that um, come to be. I've been speaking today on the Beeson Podcast with Dr. Lynn Kohick. She is the author with Amy Brown Hughes of a wonderful new book, Christian Women in the Patristic World. It's published by Baker Academic. I recommend it highly to you who are interested in Christian history, the history of women in in the church. It's a beautifully produced book and very readable and very interesting. Thank you so much, Lynn, for this conversation today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time chatting with you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.